How are you? Good. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Not that I'm not normally, but this is a very uh, one of probably the most convicting topics uh, that I'll be able to talk on in this entire series. Uh, one of those that, for myself, uh, has brought up a, a lot of things within myself to ask questions about. So I pray that this is at least something that the Holy Spirit takes with you as it has with me uh, throughout your week. Um, but we are in this series of James, and what we've been doing is just looking at the book and in, 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 in broken up into sections. And so what we realize from the book of James is that James is not just a book full of like little thoughts and insights and things to kind of think about and go, oh, I like that, or even just even wisdom literature in itself like a Proverbs, but James has an agenda. Every pastor, and James is a pastor, every pastor, when they get up and they want to talk, they have an idea, at the, hopefully, at the back of their mind of where they want this to land. And James is going to kind of open up in this section we're talking about his main thrust of his message. This will be the rudder of everything that we read in the rest of the book of James. He is trying his very best to open the eyes of the people that he is writing this letter to. And he's going to really do it in this uh, section today. Last week, or the first week, we talked about James just kind of shaping his people and saying, hey, listen... Outside circumstances, whatever comes in cannot determine whether you will maintain your faith or not. Outside circumstances as trials will shape your life in a way that tests your faith. And hopefully we pass those tests. And we rely on Christ to get us through it or Christ to be in the moment in the storm. And so he talks about persecution, he talks about the struggle, and he talks about how difficult it is, and they are going through difficulty. And some of us in this room feel like, man, I came into church today and this is the last place I wanted to be, I just want to be alone because my life has been hard. James is speaking to you. And he's talking about, this last week we talked about not only just seeing outside circumstances differently through your faith, but seeing now what we talked about last week, seeing others differently because of your faith where we no longer look at someone and we, and we classify them as this or that, or we, we see them and go, oh, well, you're this kind of person or that kind of person, or we even give even like uh, uh, preferential treatment, especially within the church, of people who are more prominent in the culture outside of this church. James makes this strong thrust, like we said last week, is that whatever the way the world operates and how it rewards itself does not belong in the church. The church is neutral ground. It is people who are hanging on by the promise of the faith that they have through Jesus. So therefore, we look at each other as equals in our desperation. This week, he's going to talk about something that I think might open up a few questions for some of us in here, or maybe affirm some things about your faith. I'll hear a lot of times of like, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm a believer? I mean, we were, we were doing some stuff over at the playground and putting in wood chips, and I had a guy volunteer who uh, I've been connecting with more and more, doesn't go to this church, and he just said, I need to know, how am I a Christian? And I would have loved to at the time brought him to James. I brought him other places, 
But this, this section here, I, I would say, let's focus in on this if I was to do it all over again. And it's in, it's in James chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, if you want, or your app, uh, 14 through 26, and it's about how to see your faith differently. I think sometimes we're, I got to be careful, sometimes we're sold that faith is one thing, unfortunately, and, it, and it's not at all what we're buying. And we're told that being a Christian is, is um, something that doesn't require much of you, but it required a lot of Jesus. And that's it. But James is trying to shift the way his people, and I think for us today, to look at how we view what actual faith is. He's going to call on and look at our actions and our deeds and also in reflect on a little bit of how valuable is this faith to you. It's important to see that. There's this great book Chad gave me. I've never read it before. And I have to use my reading glasses. Oh, I've been avoiding this, but the print's too small. All of you young, enjoy your youth. Enjoy it. Oh, boy. You did. I did, I, I did too. I did too, Larry. <laughs> this is called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You can read his bio. It's probably easily read on Wikipedia. He is a great theologian of our time and paid the ultimate price. You know that you were doing right when the Fuhrer, Hitler himself, one of his last requests is that this man dies no matter what. And he was killed as a last request um, as Germany was falling. He said this about the cost of discipleship, and he gets this idea of like what is cheap grace and what is costly grace. And he's bringing his readers along to the idea that your faith will cost you much. It shouldn't cost you nothing. And not that you have to pay for it, because Jesus did that, but the, the, the responsibility of your faith will drive you uh, to more. It should never be cheap. He said this, this is what we mean by cheap grace. He said, the grace which amounts to justification without sin, without the justification of repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace which bestowed, we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. One last highlight I liked was, oh, I can read without these. Never mind, I don't need those. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. I love this book. I'm not done with it yet. I was really glad Chad gave this to me because it's challenged me in a lot of ways about how valuable is my faith to me and what does it compel me to do, right? I was watching um, 
I don't know if any of you are into crime shows. I love a good crime show. I, I don't think that uh, one has escaped me. There is a show that I watched, and it was about these couples that decided to be, you know, all, all these different stories. But one in particular struck out, struck, struck me because this couple were they were believers. <laughs> And one of the things that they had reasoned to themselves about their faith was that, um, that God will forgive them for the murder of which they are about to commit. And they were talking that we just know that we were told that if you just pray, God's going to forgive us for this murder, which was a horrible thing that they did just for small gain. And it blew me away because I was like, you, you just thought. So it was like, dear Lord, give us this day and thank you for this murder which we are about to commit and please forgive us. What? That is not what Jesus died for. That is not real faith. That's an extreme example, I know. But it, it, is, it is a idea that some of, some of that type of a, a living can fester in us of like, well, it's not that bad. God will forgive me if I. That doesn't show a real repentant heart or a real trust in what that faith is or a revelation. It just shows maybe a, a good idea. And that's what this couple had had. It was sad. Cheap grace, this is my thoughts. Grace sells help, but it doesn't sell or give freedom. And when you truly embrace the gospel and you truly embrace what Christ has done, you will then begin to walk in freedom because you will then know what to say yes to and what to say no to. And you will be guided by that. It will not be like, okay, good, you're good. Now that Christianity was an addition to your life. And now you just go on living how you are, go on doing what you normally do. But Christianity is a great thing to have in your life. It is not an accessory. Cheap grace does not require change, but it offers fire insurance. Oh, when I was a kid, and I don't believe in this type of teaching at all, just so you know. But when I was a kid, it was like, listen, one day you're going to get hit by a bus. Could be now. And do you know where you're going? And I get what they're trying to do, but I think they're selling the wrong product. You don't want to go to hell, do you? And then they'll spend 20 minutes on how horrible hell is and not about at all the beauty of the cross. Does this make sense? And I think some people have bought into that and they live their life by the fact that if I just, I don't want to die, so I just have to have this. And so I don't really, really, really fully, truly embrace it, but I will not go to hell if I die. Thank you, Lord, for that insurance. Well, that's not what Jesus came to do is to give fire insurance. But cheap grace will sell that. Cheap grace is great words and little action. But I'll tell you that it's a lie, and it's a lie that you cannot afford. You do not want to be tricked by that one. Our faith is a costly one, and there's nowhere in the Bible that you can tell me otherwise. You point to a scenario or what Jesus has called us into or a life that we live, it will cost you in some way. It will cost your time. It might cost finances. It might cost uh, 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 swallowing your pride. It will cost decisions you will make. You might have an opportunity to succeed in one way, but you know that that's not the way that Christ would live his life or to have those things happen to get that money, so you walk away from it. It will cost you, and probably one of the things James wants to ask is, uh, does your faith cost you? Uh, let's pray 
and then we'll get into the message. God, we just uh, thank you for this word of James, and God, I thank you for the convicting power that it has, but the inspiring power that it has, that we don't have to minimize what uh, uh, put you in a box or the gospel in a box. It's so small a place that it just fits in our life, God, but it directs our life. And God, I ask that anybody in here who has maybe not really fully thrown themselves into faith and said, you know, my life is going to be directed from my faith, God, that they experience that today. And maybe some God who have been thinking, am I even a Christian? And maybe James will say, hello, yes, you are. And maybe feel a sense of security that they haven't felt. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled this message, Works of Faith. A lot of times when we think of works of faith, we think of like these great, big, beautiful displays of faith. And we think of like a miracle. And we think of like, oh, well, the, the, the sun stood still, you know what I mean? And, uh, or this person defeated a thousand people with their hands. We think of those as works of faith, but James does not talk about that kind of thing. He talks about a very different kind of thing of what works of faith are. So James 2, 14, what good is it, he says, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, and he's going to ask the question, he's going to answer the question in a way that makes people come to the conclusion. So there'll be three questions he'll essentially ask, but he's going to kind of say, is this, can that faith save a person? Someone who says, I believe, but I don't do anything about it. I believe, but it's not manifesting into a different person in my life. I'm kind of the same person. Not your personality. I'm talking about how you choose to view and encounter people and sacrificially live for God. Does it change at all, he says. This is a question that James will answer, and he's going to do it in these three kind of provoking types of questions. One, he's going to ask it in a statement, but I'll say it in a question he's really asking. Is your faith an empty claim? I don't know why you came to church today. <laughs> this, is, this is challenging. It's good. I don't want to be hard here, but I have to go with James's rhythm. Is your faith an empty claim? Is it just something that sounds good? Man, everybody knows I love reality TV. I've been watching these like uh, reality, this reality show about these people who are, they kind of live a little bit wild, but they're from the south, and so they have their faith, right? But what they'll do is at, at, multiple times throughout an episode, when I'm like, "How are you guys even praying right now, considering what you do?" and they would come together and they're like, "Lord, help us not get too hungover today." Lord, I'm not lying. Lord, help us today find some sweet honeys today. What? God is not going to help you. It, it's just like one of those things where it's like, it almost like disturbs me to see it because I'm like, please do not pray in the name of Jesus. Do not. I know your tradition and maybe you're raised in it. Maybe it's a good idea or it's an accessory, but you are not living at all like the faith you are proclaiming to know. And they know, but they do not live. So I would say maybe it's an empty claim. Maybe it feels good. Maybe it's instead of, it's like a meditation for some people. It has the same effect. I don't know. But is your faith an empty claim? James says it this way. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? It sounds like cheap grace. So James is calling them straight out. 
And he's talking about when you see your brothers and sisters in the church, we might not see it, maybe because of the area we live in or maybe the country we live in, but we might not see somebody in our church in that type of situation. So we can bring it to our context, which would be essentially if he had the analogy. What about when you see somebody who is struggling and, and, their, and their marriage or their life is in crisis and, and, and you just go, you know what, they're really going through a lot. I feel really bad for them. But you do nothing like to, to move forward. We could look at it that way. Or what about somebody who's struggling and they're just going through it and their life, it, life just hit them hard, hard, hard. It feels like whenever it, it rains, it pours and we go, wow, it must be really tough. I'll keep you in my prayers or to repress in a little further. So James is kind of asking, like, does our faith drive us to action? Have you even given that person an opportunity to say, no, thanks, I don't want your help? It's okay if they don't want it. But does it drive us? He's saying, is everything trying to move forward to be Christ-like, or is it just in words? Is it just an empty claim? I don't believe that people in our church possess this mentality. I don't. But we always have to guard against that mentality he says, so also faith by itself does not have works. If, if it does not have works, it's dead. That's a harsh statement, and it doesn't mean that you need to earn your salvation. He's saying your salvation should display fruit. Mike Fitzgerald spoke at our men's breakfast yesterday, and he did a wonderful job. And one of the passages that he was working around was the Galatians passage of fruit. Do you bear the spiritual fruit? And the question that James is getting to is like when you own your faith and it's your life, you begin to bear fruit. And if it's not bearing fruit, we have to look, is this an empty claim or do I really fully throw my life into it because it drives my actions? But he says, some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. Some of you will go through life and you'll question, am I a Christian? But your life is changing. You are treating your family members better. You are, you are walking more like Christ than you probably realize. You are changing their men mentality. You are shifting your priorities. You are c having compassion like you had not had compassion before. You are forgiving where you had not forgiven. But you still will go back and say, am I a Christian? Please read that verse. That, that because of the display that's happening in your life is a very good marker that you have possessed your faith because Christ is possessing you. But James is saying it's got to be, it's got to show. I, I'm going to my doctor tomorrow to, he, to do this routine checkup, and some of you know, but my doctor and I are frenemies. Are you guys frenemies with your doctor? I love my doctor, but I hate my doctor, and uh, I don't look forward to it but, because like, he'll give me a big speech. I was telling Christy today earlier, like, I feel like when I go into my doctor, it's how sometimes people come into church like, oh, I don't want to hear this news. Like, I, and I don't know what that feels like because I'm always here. But this is what it feels like when I go to the doctor. Like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to feel bad about this. Like, so I'm going in. And one time when I went in and I was at a low point, I just had my surgery for my thyroid, for the cancer, and then I thought my thyroid was malfunctioning, but I didn't realize I was just becoming lazy. And so I was trying to pin it on the thyroid. <laughs> and I went in and he, listen, he saw me 
And he'd seen me before where I had been more like uh, caring about health. And he'd seen me and he saw me right away and he's like, oh, uh, so you put on weight. And I was like, what? This is my doctor though. He's a great doctor though. I love him and hate him. And so I said, I'm not, I think it's because of the thyroid. He goes, it's not your thyroid. And he's like, I was like, no, it's the thyroid. And he's like, no, 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 no. Um, um, Ryan. This is when he became my enemy. Do you know what a calorie is? And I was like. <laughs> and he had just been working out, and he felt good. And he was like eating a carrot in front of me. I was like, this is unprofessional. And he's trying to explain, like, here's how a calorie. I go, I know how a calorie works. But you know the funny thing is, is he didn't think I understood that. But we can't see a calorie, but we can see the results of a calorie. This is how he was diagnosing me. I see you. And it looks like I can see there's a calorie problem here. And I was like, (laughs) you can't see someone's faith. I cannot look at you and say, that person, I'm sure they have faith. You can only see it by its results. This is how you know someone has faith, by its life transformation in their life. That's why we should never judge anybody on whether, oh, I, they're, they're a Christian by their words. No. I, wanna, I have to see it in your, in your life. doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means that you're, I, need to, it, it, I should see its effect in your life. It cannot be empty words. Is your faith just an empty claim or is it compelling your actions? We have to, we, we have to examine that ourselves. I cannot tell you that. And the next part, he's going to ask this question, or is your faith just a creed? A, a, a set of agreed upon beliefs that you intellectually acknowledge and say, that's good. Those are good things, but, 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 but we do not live by them. God is not a good idea. I never tell anybody Christianity is a good idea. It's a terrible idea because Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. If you want to live the easiest life you ever had, do not become a Christian. If you want to live a life that just is like one that you'll be the happiest and you can live your best life ever, do not be a Christian. I don't, I don't want to ever sell something that Jesus would, would be ashamed of me saying. He says, being a Christian is not a good idea. It has to be a God idea, and you have to pick up your cross and follow him. And so it cannot be just a good idea in your life. It's got to be the idea in your life. James says this, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You know, he's talking to them just kind of in a basic way, like, hey, right, you believe God is one. If you do, you do well. This is basic doctrine. And everyone's like, yeah, we believe God is one. And the Bible says in, uh, uh, in the Torah, the, the Lord is one, right? And we believe that. And then he says, yeah, even the demons believe that. Good job. This is, this is real tough. I mean, he ain't being nice. Even the demons believe that. And even more than you, they shudder. So not only do they believe, they have an emotional response where they're fearful in the very belief that God is one. And you don't even have that, he's saying. So he's saying, I, 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 you cannot live by that type of faith. That is not a faith that is anything greater than what demons believe. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's driving it home. He's not being nice. 
Your faith has to be more than a creed. It must. And as every believer, it must be more. It must possess us. It cannot be an intellectual good idea or a nice ideology. It's got to be what drives us, and it drives our actions. So James is saying, listen, it's, if it's not driving your actions, I don't think you believe what, what, what was meant for you to believe. There's so much more you're missing. It should compel you. And then he asks this last question in this last part, which is, is your faith compelling your actions? Because faithful people have compelling actions. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father? So he goes right to the big daddy. The person everybody respects and is like, yeah, Abraham, yeah. Was not Abraham our father justified, justified by his works? That's not what we normally hear. When he offered up his son Isaac at the altar. This is where God had asked him, hey, I promised you this boy. I promised uh, 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 millions of people through the lineage of this boy. And you're really old and you barely had this one. And now I want you to go ahead and I want you to sacrifice him to show you how much I mean to you. I'm sorry. That's a hard one. He, He could have been like, no, we're good. And then we'd hear a different story of Abraham. But his faith and trust that even if he did sacrifice Isaac, God could resurrect him. God made a promise and he will deliver. But his faith was so much in God, but he had actions being required and he passed them. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was complete by his works. And Scripture was fulfilled that, uh, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted as to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. This is where the church can get in trouble. Is we, we can have a lot of amens, but not a lot of doing. We can, we can hear a lot of really nice things, but we're not, we're not necessarily moving into action. So the, the world will criticize the church when we are inactive in that way. I don't think the world will ever praise the church. It doesn't seem like it's how it's going to play out. But the world will criticize and say, These, there's hypocrites there. We must fight that because we don't, I don't care about what people think about the church. I care about how we act as a church. And he goes on to say... Um, uh, this person is justified not by faith, uh, not, or by works, but not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute? Now he goes, the audacity of him, he goes from saying, Abraham, this person, was the patriarch of our faith, da, 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 and he's the father of everyone, and also Rahab the prostitute. He picks the far end of the spectrum. Now he picks two people, one who is in the Hebrew hall of faith, both of them are. One And both are in the lineage of Jesus. So he picks two from opposite ends of the spectrum. One, a faithful person following God, and the other, living a debaucherous life. But they had faith, and they worked upon that faith. I love that he brings them both in. And he says, everything in between these two, that's all of us. Not all will be Abraham type of figure and not all are prostituting, but everything in between, he says, that's our people, those are all of us. So you don't have to be something special to have faith by works and you don't have to be so lowly that it can't work for you. It is faith propelling works. 
It says, Rahab the prostitute was justified by her works when she received the message and sent the others out the other way. This is when they were getting ready to scout out Jericho. She took them in and she helped them get away and believe the word of God and what he had been doing throughout the region. And then here's his kind of final come to Jesus moment in James in verse 26. As the body apart from the spirit is dead... Their belief, and I would say our belief as well, is that when the body is dead, the spirit will depart. And so he says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart from works dead. Now he's driving it home. He's saying this is the come to Jesus moment. We can no longer live in word. We can no longer live by a creed. We can't have empty gestures. Our faith is something you embrace that compels your action. And when you, when you see action, you will see that person's faith. They don't do actions to get their faith. Their faith compels their actions. I, lo- I love James. You know, we don't read it so, sometimes for, for the way I think sometimes how he's meant to be saying this, but he's preaching to his church. I'll just say this, and I have a couple of verses I want to read. God is not interested in phony followers. He ain't. He can't read the Bible and think that he loves it. He's not like, I love those words. He's never going like, wow, I wish I could pray like that. He doesn't. Those people I was watching on the TV who are uh, definitely not living by their faith, I, I, I was blown away at how good their prayers were. I was like, I wish I could pray like that. I did. I was like, those are eloquent. Those are wonderful. God is not impressed by that. He does not interested in phony followers. Have you ever encountered somebody that you met who was saying something really, really good, but inside you're like, I don't trust you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you're, in one way, maybe you're naturally reaching for your wallet in your back pocket and you're slowly stepping back. You're like, everything sounds good, but I don't feel good. Like something feels off. I had a guy come to my door the other day. Uh, I can't remember what. It was like uh, during the holidays. He knocks on my door in the morning and he stands back his hands are dirty, and he's like, hey, what do you want for your van? And I was like, what? I was like, it's not for sale. And he's like, I just want to know, what do you want for? I'm like, I, I don't know what's happening here. I'm about ready to call the police. Like, I'm just like, why are you looking at my van? Nobody wants my van. Have you seen my van? Why do you want it? And I'm just like, I don't, it's not for sale. But wait a minute. Then I just stop for a second. Maybe this could be real. I'm not sure. And he's like, well, my girlfriend lives in the area I live. And he told me where he lived. And I was like, I don't know where near here. And he, I was like, so you just drove by and you saw my van and you knocked on my door in the morning and said, do you want to sell your car? And I was like, I'm not going to sell it. He goes, well, what about this one next to it? I was like, what is happening? I'm definitely getting your license plate number. So I was like, can I have your phone number? Can I take your license plate? I, I did all of this. I, I was like, I've got to make sure something didn't set right. His hands were dirty, so I figured he was a mechanic trying to score my van. He thought it was a, somebody who's like wanting to get rid of it. It looks like I would and should. But like, it was one of those things where I thought, like, I don't trust what you're saying. It's not for like your, he said it was for like a, some, a grandmother or somebody. And I was like, I don't trust this story. There are people in faith where they're talking a very good game, but, but, but people don't trust that. They trust what we do, not what we say. And God is not interested in that if you think that he ever is. Your great words will never impress him. It's what you do with your faith. The book of Malachi, great book, last book of the Old Testament. 
And Malachi, it's a tough read because he's chastising the people for, for something that, that James is speaking to. And I'll just tell you, I'll summarize it right now, but I'm going to give you one verse that, that, that is the scorn. And he says, God deals, in, it, in Malachi, he's dealing with a low level of sacrifice. They're like, well, what have we got left over here for you, God? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like when somebody's coming over and you're like, oh, well, we have leftovers for you, but we're cooking dinner for us later that's good. Like, it's, 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 you're so low valued, they're bringing the lowest of the sacrifices to God. And, and their teachers are, 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 are crooked, and they're teaching people a low level of theology on how to think about God and how to view themselves in light of God. So all of their standards are lowering. And the people are, they're saying all the right things, but they're not doing them at all. And so people are suffering. There's a lot of chaos amongst their community. And always, always, always the most disenfranchised are left behind. And people who hold back from God. So this is who he's dealing with. This is what he's dealing with right here real hard. So Malachi 1.9, when he's talking about this type of sacrifice to him. He says, with such a gift from your hand, will he show, show favor of, to any of you? And God just can't, he, he just can't have it. It says the Lord of hosts, and it says, oh, that there would be just one of you among you that would just shut the doors to the temple. I love this. Just please, one brave person say, enough is enough, and shut the door to the temple and say, guys, don't bring that. Come correct or don't come at all. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. Bring your best. Because somebody have the guts to do it. He says that you might not kindle a fire at my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This is a bold statement to people who become very apathetic, very lazy in their faith, and very much about words and not about action. Paul says it probably a little bit better, and it's in a verse we all know very well. I read the last half of it, but I got to read the first. Paul, Paul kind of brings a real clarity to it. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, if I speak of tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Love in this term right here is an action item. It's not, it's not a feeling. This is action. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. This is, this is to God you are. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Meaning that you can, you can have all the faith in the world, but love the action item here. If you don't have it, you, you have nothing. And I, if I give away all that I have, we'd say, well, there's action. But not the action that maybe God wanted you to take. But you did it because you just want to give, because you wanted to feel better. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Meaning that if I'm not loving people the way Jesus has loved people, it doesn't matter. The, the wealthiest people in the world right now are all banding together and giving all their wealth away. That means nothing to God. What means something to God is that you are doing it for Him and His kingdom, and you are following who Christ is. What do you do, or what do works of faith look like? And I think this is a question I have to answer real quick. One is, I thought about like, okay, I could pick out snippets and ideas for people to see like, oh, if I do this, if I do that, but then this becomes very workspace, so let's just take it up a little bit higher and look at a, 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 a philosophy of life around action. Ephesians 5, 1, 2, this is what it looks like to have works of faith. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. It's the best way to honor your father. 
and walk in love as Christ's love. Walk in action and in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, here's what the people in the book of Malachi did not get from God. When Jesus did this, it was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now we know this is what it looks like to have works of faith. Is that they're sacrificial. We deny ourselves in some ways and to, to sacrifice to give and to be someone who displays their faith. We say no to certain sins and take up right living. It's a constant sacrifice to God, just as Jesus did. And his actions, his actions were, were, were following his faith, right? He was doing God's will. And when you do God's will, it pleases him. And that's how you please God. It will not be because you feel good about yourself that you gave all this money away. That doesn't mean anything to God. It means that you're doing his will. And when it's in his will, whatever you do, he will love that. And your faith, I'll just say this, it should cost you. You know? I always have this thing in my head that's always going on in my head all the time when I really want to compromise. And it's like, Ryan, or if I want to be um, uh, something in the Christian world where I, where I can become fake, you know what I mean, where it's just easy to put on a face. I always have this thing where it's like, do not labor in vain. Do not labor in vain. Being a Christian is hard. So why in the world would I labor in vain? Why would I waste my life pretending to be something just so I could feel good? Don't labor in vain. It's not being recognized by God whatsoever. So labor correctly. So it should cost you. I'll read this last verse and we'll close. Romans 2, 4 through 8. Paul is dealing with this in the book of Romans of how people are treating each other. And he's noticing there's not a lot of great behavior happening. And he's actually noticing that they've given their life to Jesus, maybe in word, in deed, maybe in some ways, but they're living the life that they used to live. They haven't changed. They're still going to sex parties. They're still going and being drunkards. They're still... So he's dealing with this like, guys, what have you signed up for? Do you know what you signed up for? And he says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is when we say, God is so great. He loves me so much. But that is to lead you to repentance in the way we live our life to start saying no to things and saying yes to other things. He says, verse 5, but because of your hard and impotent hearts, he's speaking to people in his church. He's not speaking to unbelievers. Because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, listen to what Paul says, which agrees with James. He will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patient and in, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. These are just words of truth of, the, of Scripture. God is looking for people who, who, who are not making a creedal confession. God is looking for people who aren't looking, who are, who are, who are not making empty claims, but their faith is being lived out. Their faith is visible, not for other people to give glory to, but if you have faith in Christ, it should display in the way we live our lives. God does not do phony. James uh, two 
14 through 26 is a gut check before we get into the rest of the book. It's a gut check about our faith. It's a come to Jesus moment before you continue to read about how valuable is our faith? What value do we place on it? I'm going to ask you three questions. This should be up on the screen that we can reflect on. And I'm doing this myself, so you're not alone if you're doing this. I'm preaching to myself. How much has your life and lifestyle changed because of your faith? If it looks exactly the same before you became a Christian, you should relook at this. Because it should look differently. People, people should see it also, but it doesn't matter that they do. It's not, that's not what your faith is dependent on. But it should begin to look differently on how we live our life. It should begin to transform us. And we should begin to see things differently and people differently. How much do your words find action behind them? Um... I have been known in the past to give advice that I, I actually didn't know what I was saying. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever done that? Where you're saying something, but you've never really practiced it, but it, was a good, it sounded good, so you hope that they would also hear it the way you did and go, that sounds really nice. But I didn't really know. And I think that this is, this is what James is asking. This is how much of your words actually have action behind them? Are they just really good statements, or do they have movement behind them? And then the last question I think we should ask ourselves is, does my faith cost me anything? I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in this, in a part I didn't read, is that, that why this grace is costly, because it costs God his most important thing. And so to take what God treated so seriously in his most important thing, and to say, well, Thanks, God. Thanks for the ticket to heaven. I'll see you at the, my deathbed. One last prayer, and here I go. That is not what Jesus came for. He paid so much, and we shouldn't expect as Christians not to pay. And not to pay for salvation. You're not doing that, but your faith will cost you. Jesus paid a price everywhere he walked, but, he, but, but so many lives were touched by it. But it will cost you. It should. Does my faith cost me anything if you guys could bow your heads, I'll just say God is looking for a radiant church. This is my charge to our church. A church full of Christ-like people. A church full of people who offer fragrant offerings to God. A church who values Christ's sacrifice and lives in the light of that love. That's the kind of church we hope to be at Soundhouse. I don't think we're perfect. We try. But I wanted to teach this section of James differently. I'm not going to lie. Because the other way that James most likely intended it was tough. But I don't think we should shy away from that. Some of us, some of us need a good wake-up call. Some of us need a good like, oh man, I've been really apathetic in my faith. Some of us need a good wake-up call or an encouragement even saying like, wow, I have been practicing my faith. My faith is alive and I've doubted it a lot. Some of us need to know that like, where God stands on when it comes to words. He's not that interested, but he's definitely interested in you valuing your faith so much that it changes your life or your desire to change. That's what he loves. Let's not labor in vain. It's not worth it. Having a social face at church doesn't matter. But being somebody who is laboring out of love that matters. That's worth living for, and that's worth dying for. 
God, we come to you and we thank you as we sing this last song of worship, God, as we stand in awe of you. God, increase our appreciation for the value like that person Jesus used an example that they, they, would, they, would, they would dig up a whole field, leave everything and sell everything just to have this most valuable thing. God, I ask that that's increased in our life, that we feel that sense. And God, I ask that we take these words that James is writing to a church 2,000 years ago that are very relevant to us as a church now. That our faith is so wonderful, it will cost us. But we're willing to pay the cost because we see the value of it. And I ask that, God, that, that everywhere we go, that that faith will be manifest in our actions, not to prove how good we are, but just displaying fruit because we're growing healthy, we're rooted in you, and the natural thing is to display fruits of the Spirit. We love you so much. And God, I thank you for this church. And I ask that you continue to help grow us to be a more radiant church for the world around us and for those in this church, for each other. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.